We're in a series uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been making our way through, and we got to chapter 5 here a couple weeks ago. Chapter 5 starts the Sermon on the Mount. It's a uh, uh, three chapters, Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. It's uh, a lot of what a lot of people would consider Jesus' greatest sermon, maybe his longest sermon recorded in the Bible anyway. And uh, he starts off that sermon uh, with these, these, these declarations. Uh, that we know as the Beatitudes, and they're kind of found in the first uh, 10 or 11 verses there of of Matthew chapter 5. And so, as we're starting this uh, movement into the Sermon on the Mount, we're actually going to take our time uh, with the with the beatitudes, and so uh, last week we were uh, we got started, and this is this is week week two. So before we get into it, uh, just real quick, the word beatitude. Um, you know, my guess is that uh, you you unless you were reading Matthew chapter five, you probably didn't say the word beatitude this past week. You know, sipping your coffee, talking with a friend. Um, it's not a word that's really made it into our current vocabulary. Uh, but just uh, we've shared this a few times, but just as uh, uh, kind of a recap. Beatitude is a is a it comes from a Latin word beatus. So you can see the connection beatitude beatus. That Latin word is translating a Greek word, which was the original language that the Bible was written in. Makarios is the Greek word. So makarios was translated into Latin, became beatus. Beatus became an English word beatitude. But in most English Bibles, this word is actually translated blessed. So if you have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 5, you just see chapter, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, all the way down, it's, they start with the word blessed. Well, that's the Latin word beatus that was tra- translating the Greek word makarios. So that's how we got the word, but it still doesn't really tell us what, what it is. Uh, what is a beatitude? They, they, they are descriptions of the good life from Jesus' perspective. Dr. Jonathan Pennington suggests that maybe the best translation of this word in our current cultural moment is the word flourishing. And so these are actually, a, they're, like, they're like declarations. They're, they're not divine blessings that are bestowed upon you. They're not commands. Rather, uh, one writer put it this way, they are congratulatory descriptions of people in a state of well-being. So the illustration that we used uh, last week was, think of Jesus walking through a a meadow, and there's trees in this meadow, and he sees one that just has bright green leaves and juicy fruit on it, and he points to that tree and he says, that's that's a flourishing tree. That is a flourishing tree. And as he's giving us the Beatitudes, that's, that's the sense in which he's doing this. He's putting them before us as congratulatory descriptions of people who are in a state of well-being. He's pointing out the flourishing. He's pointing out the good life. In the beginning of this uh, chapter, he goes up and he goes up on the mountain and then sits down. That's the position of an authoritative teacher. And so he is declaring his vision of the good life. And we said this in the weeks past, but this is what every great teacher's done over the course of history. They give you their vision for the good life. And Jesus is giving his vision of the good life. And these descriptions are descriptions of people who are flourishing in the world. So last week, we looked at the phrase, and they all feel upside down. It feels like an upside down thing, but that's because Jesus and his kingdom are an upside down kingdom. So last week, we saw the poor in spirit. And what we uh, said, maybe the the most uh, simple way to try to grasp that is that you recognize that the deepest problems of your life and of the world are bigger than you, that you cannot actually handle the biggest problems in your life and the world. You don't have the internal resources to do it. 
And so it actually creates this poverty of spirit, this recognition that you need to look for help. And Jesus's point is, is if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to get that low, that's the best place in the world to find him. Because he says in, the, um, in other places that he lifts up the humble. That's what he does. And so the poor in spirit get low in their spirit. They, get, they, they recognize that they need help from the outside. And that is the place that you find the gospel news, the help that Jesus offers. This week, uh, we're going to look at the next one, which is blessed are those who mourn. Those who mourn. What, what does that mean? Jesus is saying, flourishing are those who lament what is broken. <clears throat> who lament what is broken. So let, let's talk about this uh, for a little bit. When you think about our current cultural moment, may, maybe not necessarily June of 2023, um, but like the last years or maybe the last couple decades, and you just kind of read our cultural moment, uh, there, there's been a lot of hard things going on in, in our culture, a lot of hard things to, to navigate uh, in our society. And there's an author, uh, her name's Anne Lamott, and if you know Anne Lamott, uh, Anne Lamott is, uh, she's a little spicy. Uh, she likes to stir the pot. Uh, she likes to, 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 to mess with things. Uh, she's one of those people that likes to uh, make the comfortable uncomfortable um, and in, her, in her writing. But th- this, is, this is what she wrote uh, in, in one of her books. She says, it is all hopeless. Even for a crabby optimist like me, things couldn't be worse. Everywhere you turn, our lives and marriages and morale and government are falling to pieces. The planet does not seem long for this world. What I wanted my whole life was relief. Relief from pressure, isolation, people suffering, including my own suffering. I feel that I can't stand one more single death in my life. Can you relate to that? You know, yesterday we had uh, Bob Jackson's uh, funeral here at our, our, in, our, in, our, in our church. And uh, it, was a, it was a sweet time. It was a, it was a beautiful time where friends and family gathered to, to remember Bob. Um, but as Lou preached the sermon, he invited us into the recognition of the, the brokenness of the world. And yes, the hope that Jesus offers, but, but to, to recognize the, the, the brokenness of the world and that death is, is part of that. And uh, after that funeral, two different people at that funeral said to me, uh, I've been to too many funerals recently. You know, maybe, maybe you can relate to these kinds of emotions. You know, it's not actually very hard to see it, but it is pretty common to try to shield ourselves from having to admit it. Uh, maybe you can, can uh, start to put the pieces together as to, to why it is that we are spending so much money on material things why we spend so much time and effort to get away on another vacation, why substance abuse is on the rise in our society. You know, we're trying to find some level of excitement, some level of distraction, some level of dulling our emotions and our, and our, our, uh, our internal life. There, there's all kinds of evidence that we feel it, and there's all kinds of evidence that we also try to shield ourselves from it or to try to hide from it. Um, you know, some of you in this room have experienced tragedy, tragedy in your own life, tragedy in your immediate family. You've had unexpected deaths, tragic accidents, terminal diagnoses, severe disappointments, relational betrayal, financial failure, relational failure. You know, my, my wife, my wife works in behavioral intervention with elementary kids. 
And, uh, you know, sometimes it's like you can kind of think, well, man, kids are so innocent. But, you know, my, the, wife, the job that my wife has puts her in the seat almost every day of her job where she is navigating really hard and really sad situations that children, uh, you know, as, as young as five and six years old are, are trying to figure out. And she's not alone. So, some of you in this room work in those fields. Social work, counseling, therapy, grief, addiction, poverty, all of those jobs, all of those spaces, you, 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 have to, you have to face these things. It's actually impossible to hide from it. And we go back to Anne Lamott saying, you know, it, it kind of can feel hopeless. It, it can feel hard out there. And yet here is Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, saying, Blessed are those who mourn. Flourishing are those who lament what is broken. You know, can he be right about that? Well, let's, let's, let's see. First, I want to start off by actually trying to at least describe a little bit of what mourning is or what, uh, we're going to look at it from a Christian perspective, so what Christian mourning is. So the word for mourn that's used here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, means to wail or grieve or lament. So it's not saying you shed a tear or you, or you whimper. It's actually saying all in grief, all in sorrow wailing, grieving, lamenting. You know, if you're familiar with the, the Bible, in, in the Old Testament, there's actually a book of the Bible called Lamentations. And maybe if you, if you grew up going to church or going to some kids' programs or, you know, kids' clubs or something like that, you may have memorized the books of the Bible. And, and that would be a, obviously a, a great thing to do. But I, that's my life. I grew up doing that. And it's like, it took me a long time for some reason to realize that Lamentations starts with the word lament. And that whole book, an entire book in the Old Testament, all five chapters, it's a collection of laments. Uh, Bible scholars suggest that all five of those chapters are basically funeral dirges. It's like five funeral dirges, that they have a tempo to them that is like the tempo of a funeral dirge. They have the language of a funeral dirge. And, And the Bible includes an entire book of the Bible that is all lamenting. If you were a songwriter and you were told to make, um, you know, take the book of Lamentations and write songs, you, you would write them with a very slow tempo and you would write them in a minor key. That's, that's the tone of, that, of that, that whole book. And the Bible includes it as part of God's word to us. In addition to that, uh, if you were to read through the 150 Psalms that are included in the Bible, dozens of them, and the, the, the final number is debated, but dozens and dozens of them are laments. You read through the Psalms, and the, and the psalmist is, is uh, putting it on the page, man. They are, they, are, they are pouring out their heart. They are lamenting. They are mourning. They are grieving. On the pages of the Bible, we see men crying. We see women crying. We see Jesus crying. You know, the Bible is clearly not afraid of the emotional range. These, the, all of these inclusions, they are ways that the Bible affirms the value and the goodness of mourning of lamenting. But Christian lament is doing something more than just mourning. It's actually taking our sorrow and our anger and our sufferings and our frustrations and our heartaches, and it's actually taking them to the God of heaven. It's actually bringing them to the God of heaven where you're engaging him and basically saying, God, you've told us that you have this character, and I'm fighting to believe that that's true, But this stuff is terrible. 
this stuff hurts like crazy. This stuff doesn't make any sense. It seems like the people that are trying to follow you are, are losing and the people that hate you are winning. Like, can you make sense of this? What, what is going on? I hate this. I hate this part of my life. I hate that this is happening in the world. Christian lament is talking to God about our sadness, about our struggle, about our tragedies. So Christian lament is aimed at God and Christian lament is much deeper than complaining. Another author named Anne Voskamp, who is much less spicy than Anne Lamott, um, she, she tried to gave us a couple quotes trying to com- contrast maybe Christian lament versus complaining. And, and this, is, this is what she says. Lament is a cry of belief in a good God, a God who has his ear to our hearts, a God who transfigures the ugly into beauty. Complaint is the bitter howl of unbelief in any benevolent God in this moment, a distrust in the love beat of the Father's heart. So Ann Voskamp is saying that, you know, maybe, maybe a way to contrast these ideas of like what is just complaining and what is like mourning or what is the difference between just mourning and Christian mourning is that you're actually coming to the God of heaven and you're fighting to believe that he is who he says he is even as you're extremely frustrated, even as you're extremely frustrated. And if you believe in an all-powerful God, which the Bible teaches us that he is, then this is quite understandable. It's quite understandable that this is going to be part of our journey here. But, but one caution before we move on. Um, maybe you've noticed this in your life. Maybe you've experienced it. Maybe you've done it. Uh, and, and these are generalizations for sure. Uh, but, but there's often like these kind of two approaches that can happen in the middle of grief or struggle or mourning, lament. Um, maybe you've been with someone who, you know, you come and you're, you're torn up, like you, you're, you're a mess and you get greeted with somebody who is truth without tears. You know, you, you show up and you're, you're, you're a mess. Um, and what they see is like, oh, I, I, I you know, treat it like a math problem. Like they, they look at you like, oh, I see the four things that you have done to get yourself in this situation. And here are the three things that you can do to solve this. And they treat you like a math problem. They treat you like, you know, three steps to this, three steps out. And it's very, it can come across very cold and very disengaged. Uh, Sometimes this is associated a little bit more with like a conservative mindset, or maybe you would say like a stoic mindset, where there's an invitation to distance yourself uh, from the emotions of your circumstances. Uh, These people tend to be fixers. And I can relate to them because this would be the camp that I, that I default to, that I tend to land here. I tend to think like, okay, you got a problem. How can we fix it? Instead of you've got a problem, how are you doing? Uh, it's much more of a fixer kind of a, a mentality. You know, does that work? You know, you've probably heard that, that quote before that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You know, that, that, that sentiment or that idea of actually seeing them as a human being seeing them for the experience that they're navigating, that is crucial in the moment of, of mourning or, or lament or suffering. And when we bypass that and we're just like, hey, here's, here's some truth bombs, uh, you, you know, I can testify from personal uh, uh, experience that that doesn't, doesn't work. But another one that can happen, another ditch to fall in is tears without truth. And these are the kinds of interactions where, you know, this might be a little bit more associated with the progressive mindset or maybe even like an existential nihilism where they look at life and it's like, there's no meaning to anything. 
there's no purpose. There's, there's no absolute truth. There's, there's no meaning to, to the life that you're living. And when someone comes at their life, which there are plenty of people, and it seems like an increasing measure, who are seeing their life this way, think about, how, like, that doesn't work either, because think about what they say to you. Oh, you're, you're going through these hard times? Well, you know, life doesn't matter anyway. How does that help? How does that help in the moment of your mourning, in the moment of your lament? You know, if there's no truth, if there's no meaning, I mean, you know, they're just saying, I'm really sorry, but all of life is pointless. That's not going to move the needle at all. You know, one philosopher uh, wrote this, but the life of man is of no greater importance to the universe than that of an oyster. Man, if you believe that the life of the friend that's talking to you is of no more importance than an oyster, you're not going to be very much help in the moment of trial, in the moment of hardship. You know, ne- neither of those approaches work. The, 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 tears without, uh, the truth without tears, much more of a fixer mentality. The tears without truth, much more of a feeler mentality, but they don't have anywhere to go. What about Jesus? Is he, is he a, a fixer or a feeler? Truth without tears, tears without truth. How, how does Jesus interact with this? Well, I want you to turn, if you're in Matthew chapter 5, turn to the right, go to the back of your Bible, some, a few books, and head over to John chapter 11. We're going to spend the rest of our time uh, in John chapter 11. Uh, and this is a, a historic passage. It's the, uh, the passage where Jesus, um, you know, a minute ago I said that Jesus cried. The Bible records Jesus crying. This is the most famous passage of Jesus crying. And uh, you see the very beginning of the chapter uh, in John chapter 11, you find out that a guy named Lazarus dies. And Lazarus is one of Jesus's friends. And Lazarus has two sisters, Martha and Mary. And Martha is like an energetic, uh, duty-driven go-getter. And Martha uh, and Mary is much more of the relational friend kind of a a person because the Bible has introduced them to us before. Um, as Jesus finds out about the death of Lazarus and then makes his way to Bethany, to, to, the, to where Lazarus uh, was buried, where Lazarus had lived, where his sisters still lived, as Jesus comes up to, to, to Bethany, to the house there, he first runs into Martha. And when he runs into Martha, we, we, we see him engage with Martha, starting in verse 21 of, of John chapter 11. And Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even, uh, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, verse 23, your brother will rise again. Martha says, well, I know that on the last day. And Jesus says, no, I am the resurrection and the life. And, 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 and biblical scholars actually recognize that the Greek, the Greek that Jesus uses, the language that Jesus uses, it, it's pretty aggressive. It's pretty pointed. That when Jesus interacts with Martha, it's, a, it's much more of like a corrective kind of an engagement. And so Martha comes and says, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus kind of corrects her. He says, no, the, re- the resurrection. There's a resurrection. What are you, what are you talking about? There, like there's a resurrection. And, it, and Jesus comes across in this interaction very much more as a fixer. Very much more on the side of, of truth. But then a few verses later, he actually gets up to the house and he runs into Mary. And look at what Mary says in verse 32. Jesus sees her weeping. He sees the other people weeping. He's deeply moved. Verse, um, I'm sorry, verse 32. uh, She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Almost the exact same thing 
that Martha says, almost identical. And what does Jesus do with her? By the end of verse 33, it says that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and it's all he could get out of his mouth was, where have you laid him? Verse 35, Jesus wept. When Jesus interacts with Mary, it's very much more on the feeler end. It's very much more on the tears end. When he interacts with Martha, it seems like it's truth. It seems like he's a fixer. When he interacts with Mary, it seems like he's a feeler. It seems like he's in, in tears. What, 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 we're going to talk more about this, but just as we, as we get going here, what I want you to see is that Jesus is not either or on this. Je- Jesus is both and. Truth with tears. A feeler and a fixer. And, and let, let me show you uh, why, why that is good news. So if Christian mourning is this recognition, you know, we said up off the bat that lament is mourning what is broken. If Christian lament is taking the trials of the world and bringing them before God, if that's it, it, it's this effort to say, God, this doesn't make any sense. This is breaking my heart. I'm frustrated. I'm, I'm, I'm a little annoyed. All, all the emotional range. And you bring that instead of like hiding from God, you actually bring that before God. Why should we mourn? Why should we? I want to stay in John 11 and just uh, draw, draw out a few ideas. I want you to see how Jesus engages the tragedy of the loss of his friend. So in verse 38, if you kept reading, after Jesus wept in verse 35, you get up to verse 38 and it says, Then Jesus deeply moved again. In the verses before that, it says they, they saw how much Jesus loved him. Jesus wept. In verse 36, the Jews are watching. They look, look at this. Look, look at how much he loved Lazarus. And then as Jesus is standing at the grave, verse 38, deeply moved again. And so Jesus is expressing an emotional range that scholars have found to be really, really intriguing. Uh, because while it, it certainly indicates that he was crying, uh, the word that's used in verse 38 where it says that Jesus deeply moved, and you can find this, uh, you can find a lot written about this, uh, but that that word actually has the sense of being furious or, or actually being angry. That as Jesus is standing at the grave of his friend, he is weeping and he is furious about it. It's, it's a really intriguing word. And if you want to do some work on that on your own, you, I think you'll find it to be an intriguing thing. But Jesus wasn't just sad. He was sad, but he was also very, very angry. And what I want you to see is what is it that Jesus is angry about? What, what is it that he's angry about? I mean, look, he is not mad at the mourners. He is not angry at the mourners. Uh, you, you see throughout this text, John chapter uh, 11, verse 33, there are a lot of people crying. The sisters were crying, the Jews that were with them, a lot of crying going around Jesus. Wailing, actually, is the word in verse 33, that they were wailing. And Jesus doesn't correct it. He doesn't rebuke it. Not at all. Not at all. He, he is in that moment, and he is receiving this reality that they have lost their friend too, and Jesus doesn't rebuke their sorrow. He doesn't rebuke their wailing. And listen, Here's the good news for us. Jesus doesn't get mad at our sorrow either. When there's brokenness in the world, and as we just stated, our world's full of it, Jesus doesn't get mad at our mourning and our grief and our sorrow either. So Jesus doesn't get mad at the mourners. You know who else Jesus doesn't get mad at? Jesus doesn't get mad at himself. Now, now, now hang with me on this. 
if somebody close to you dies, isn't it tempting to get mad at God? Isn't it tempting to go through that and just be like, God, what in the world are you doing? Why didn't you prevent this? Why didn't you prevent this tragedy? Why didn't you prevent this betrayal? You, you with the snap of your fingers, you could have stopped this. Why, why didn't you stop this? What's wrong with you? Why did you do that? That is a very natural response. You know, yesterday, again, we had Bob's uh, funeral here. And there was a guy, I'd, I'd never met him before, but I, I was talking with him out in the foyer. He knew Bob really, really well. And uh, he used some colorful language. But he just said, you know, I don't know what to make of this. He's like, it feels like God's taken the wrong people. There's a lot of buttholes in the world. And he's taken guys like Bob. Why would he ever do that? You know, uh, it, tomorrow is uh, the one-month anniversary of, of, of Tim Keller. Tim Keller died on uh, May 19th, uh, this, you know, just a month ago. And I felt that when, when, when he got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I felt that when he died. I'm thinking, of all the people, of all the people to take, like, you know, take me, like, leave Tim Keller. T take, take somebody else, like, leave Tim Keller. It is so natural to look at this and be like, God, why, where are you? Are you asleep on the job? Why don't you fix this? I, I blame you for the death of that person. I blame you for that loss. I blame you for that tragedy. Now think about who Jesus is. Jesus, throughout these gospel accounts, is aware of the fact that he is God. He is conscious to that fact. He says all kinds of crazy things. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He just said, I am the resurrection and the life. He is making all kinds of grand statements that associate him with Yahweh, with the God of heaven, with the God of Israel. He knows who he is. And as he stands at the grave, he's not mad at himself. He actually was slower than he could have been. He could have been to, to Lazarus's uh, house sooner. And he actually didn't rush Lazarus dies, and when he stands at the grave, Jesus isn't mad at the mourners, but he's also not mad at himself. You know who Jesus is mad at? You know what Jesus is mad at? Jesus is mad at death. Jesus is mad at death. And what it tells us is this, that death was never the design. That the world that he made, the world that he created, did not have death as part of the plan. So where did death come from? Well, the Bible says that death came from sin. It comes from rebellion. In the first two chapters of the Bible, we have God's creative work where he brings this world, this incredibly good world. He calls it good, and then he calls it very good. And he, he creates this world, and everything in it is right. Every relationship, every system, every bit of it is right. And then when you get to the third chapter of the Bible, you realize that the crown of his creation, mankind, Adam and Eve, Instead of trusting God, they trust themselves, they go their own way, they choose their own adventure, and that is, that is called rebellion against God. That is sin. And when sin came flooding into the world, it created an incredible amount of decay, of, vandalized, uh, of vandalization, of destruction. It ruined God's good world. It scarred it uh, in, in, a, in a way that cannot be repaired by any of our efforts. When they rebelled against God as their master, they brought to bear on this earth incredible destruction. But you might be asking, okay, so Adam, Adam and Eve sinned, and sin came into the world, but I got the same question. God could have stopped that tragedy from happening in my life. 
Why couldn't God just be like, okay, you know, again, snap his fingers and, you know, wipe, wipe sin out. Just, just get it back out of here. Yeah, I believe in an all-powerful God. I, I believe in a God that, that, that's that big. Why, why couldn't he just do that? Doesn't he have the power to do that? Well, the answer is, of course he has the power to do that. But there is a huge problem with that solution. If God does that, if God just comes and says, oh, okay, I'll, I'll wipe away all sin, guess who gets wiped away with that? We all get wiped away with that. I get wiped away with that because sin has actually infected me. And so if God is going to come and say, oh yeah, sin's got in here, let's wipe sin out, that means he wipes all of us out. And so God has an actual solution, a real solution that can bring to bear a reality in which God can address sin and not wipe everybody out. Actually provide a way to where you could be literally saved from the rightful judgment against sin that is deserved in this world. And that's the message of the gospel. You see, the only way to truly address the problem of sin without wiping out everybody and everything was for God to rip the roof off of the world and climb in himself, to take on a human body and carry upon himself all the sin of the world and to bring it to bear on his own self so that he could be filled with our sin and we could be freed from our sin. He was willing to be wiped out so that we didn't get wiped out. But that comes at incredible cost to him. It cost him his life. You know, when you think about Jesus and the life that he led and the life that he lived, you, you would rightly understand and could make the statement that he was the most well-adjusted, most flourishing human who's ever walked the face of the earth. And yet, you know what one of his nicknames was? A man of sorrows. Jesus was known as a man of sorrows. You see, the, the story of Lazarus is a picture of the gospel, and it's a picture of the heart of Jesus. Sin has infected the world, and it has brought death, and death means separation. Separation from creation, separation from each other, separation from our own selves, and most significantly, separation from God, and it breaks God's heart. He hates that that's the condition of things. He hates that sin has done this to his good world. The death of Lazarus is a real-time experience of the separation that sin has brought to the world, and Jesus hates it. Jesus hates it with every bone in his body. Jesus stands before that grave, and he weeps, and he's furious about the effects of sin. But have you asked yourself, why did Jesus cry so hard? at the grave of Lazarus. I mean, if you know this account, he is going to raise him again in like minutes, literally minutes. And so why, why is Jesus crying so hard? I mean, it could be that the separation from that friend, from his friend Lazarus, was just that serious. It was that significant. It's, it's possible. But, but could it be that in that moment, that as Jesus stood at the grave of his friend Lazarus, that what was racing through his mind was all of the graves that he would not be at. All of the graves of your friends and my friends. All of the tragedies in my life and your life that Jesus wouldn't physically be at. And in that moment, 
He, in his kindness and his grace, actually brought all of those realities of all of the sin and all of the brokenness, the reality that what he was experiencing with Lazarus, that he was going to address in a few minutes. There's going to be a whole lot of stories that he wasn't going to address in a few minutes. You know, one of the realities of being a pastor at the same church for a really long time is that when I look around this room, I see a lot of stories. And I see a lot of people who've been through a lot of really hard things. And if I was you, I could look at this story and say, man, it's pretty awesome that Jesus raised his friend from the dead after four days. But like that didn't happen in my story. That's not happening in my life. That tragedy in my story is an ongoing tragedy. Or that's a tragedy that's never going to get fixed. Is it possible that as Jesus is standing in front of that grave, that we were on his mind? Not just Lazarus, but all of the deaths. Not just that tragedy, but all of the tragedies. And as he stands there and he thinks about this reality of the, of the, the, the pain of separation, the pain that sin brings, it brought tears to his eyes, but it also brought fury to his heart. A recognition that this is the way the world is now. Jesus really loved Lazarus, and that made this all the worse. But listen, Jesus really loves you, and the brokenness of the world makes him weep with anger. Look, if you dare to love in the world, in the condition that it is, if you, C.S. Lewis does, does really great on this. You know, C.S. Lewis lost the love of his life, and he really had a hard time processing it. Like, how am I supposed to recover from losing the love of my life? And he does that in a few different places, and Grief Observed is, is the book, but he, he does it in other places too. And as he's trying to process, what do I do with this size of a loss? And maybe you can relate to C.S. Lewis. Maybe you look at your life right now, and you're like, I can't even calculate the size of this loss. How am I supposed to bounce back from this? How, how am I supposed to come back from this? C.S. Lewis's point is this, basically. If, if you dare to love in this world, then you are going to suffer in this world. But somehow, suffering actually makes us better at loving. So if we're going to love, we're going to suffer. But somehow, that suffering actually makes us better at loving. You know, C.S. Lewis says, that's the condition in the world we're in. That's, that's where it's at. He's like, there is another option, though. You, you could create a world and an environment where your heart doesn't suffer like that, where your heart doesn't get broken like that. And what C.S. Lewis says is, here's what you could do. You could lock it away. You, you could chain it up and put it in a little box, like, like a little casket, and put it in a dark closet and lock the door and bolt the door and never let anyone at all get close to your heart. And if you do that, then yeah, you won't experience the broken heart of a lost love. But you will experience something far, far worse. He says, in that dark room, in that dark casket, your heart might not break over the suffering of the loss of love, but it will actually become unbreakable. It will become impenetrable. It will become irredeemable. In other words, your heart is going to get stale, and cold, and dead. And C.S. Lewis says, you can pick that. 
if you want to. And then he uses a little bit of an analogy here, but he says the only place in the whole universe where you can be safe from, from that kind of suffering is hell. Because only down there is your heart so hard that you don't love anything. You won't feel anybody else's pain because you won't feel anything. But that's the definition of death. That's the definition of disintegration. C.S. Lewis's point is you're protecting yourself from something, but the loss is far greater when you try to take that route. God offers a better way. If you love, yeah, you will mourn. But for the Christian, that is actually a sign that you love what is good and what is right. That you look at this world in its current condition and you say, this is not how it's supposed to be. You know, have you ever wondered how, like you, you've probably heard this before, that like you need like 10 compliments for one criticism or you need like 10 good things to happen to you for one bad thing because that one bad thing seems to have just such a big footprint. Well, part of the reason why I think that might be is because when the bad thing happens, okay, when the good thing happens, we're like, that's how life is supposed to be. When the bad thing happens, there is something inside of us that says, this is not how it's supposed to be. And when we are willing to have the vulnerability to mourn, to take our griefs and our sorrows to God, and to admit the fact that this is not right, that this is not how it's supposed to be, that this is the evidence of sin and brokenness in the world, Jesus is actually saying that's the flourishing life. Christians are invited to be just as mad at suffering as Jesus was. Jesus points to the mourners, and he says they are flourishing because they are dealing with reality. They're dealing with reality. That's really the condition of the world. It really is broken. But that reality, the world that is right now, is not going to last very long. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He really is going to make all things new. He's going to make it all right. You know, one of my favorite Tim Keller quotes is that in the end, we're going to find out that it's not just consolation. We don't just get a hug. It's restoration. Somehow we get it all back. And you say, how do we get it all? I don't have any idea how we get it all back. But somehow it all gets remade. It all gets restored. And Jesus looks at the mourners and says, yeah, you taste it. You see it. You're admitting it. This isn't right. This isn't the world. And just like Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, you're longing for something better. Well, Jesus actually is going to bring it. He's already started the process. What he did on the cross in our place, on our behalf, was the first steps of resurrection, the first steps of restoration. And the Bible says he's coming back. And when he does, he is going to wipe away all death and sin and tragedy and sorrow. He is going to wipe every bit of it away. Jesus says that mourning is good, but he also says that, uh, that he's going to wipe away every tear. That mourning's here, but it's going to be gone. Mourning is right and good, but it has a shelf life. There's no mourning in heaven. There's no, there's no mourning in the eternal kingdom. Now, you may have noticed that our order of service was a little different. We had a couple songs before our sermon instead of three. Uh, and that's because we're going to do three sermons uh, after the song. So, uh, and you also see communion's not up front. It's at tables. And communion is um, self-serve. And so what we're doing is we're singing, we're singing three songs. And uh, the, the, the goal here is to try to create some space. Um, as, you, as you recognize these realities, 
I, I am well aware of the fact that these may be hitting you in different ways. That some of you in here, this, this might feel uh, incredibly intense that, to actually hear Jesus say that it's flourishing, you know, the, the mourners are flourishing. And so we, we invite you uh, to come and take communion whenever you want. There's three songs. You don't have to rush. Uh, come whenever you want. People, you can climb over your row. They'll, they'll be fine. Um, and you can stay seated while we sing. Uh, I'm going to be standing. I invite you to stand if you want to. You can stand on the chair if you want to. Uh, if you want to pray, if you, wanna, if you want prayer, come up here. And some of us who are keeping an eye out, we'll pray with you. Just come up here to the front of the church, and we would love, love to pray with you. Um, but this, this communion is a remember. A reminder, we, we do it every week. It's a reminder that Jesus got his hands dirty to solve the problem, that he climbed in here to fix the problem. He broke his body and spilled his blood to fix the problem. And so when we mourn and we admit, man, the world's not right, it is such a great reminder that Jesus actually came to solve that problem. So uh, we're going to sing uh, the prayers. There's some prayers in the bulletin if you need some language, uh, but the, la the lyrics for the songs will be on the screen, uh, and we invite you to, to stand or worship in whatever way you want. So let's, let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus Christ, and thank you for the, uh, the vulnerability that he showed us in John 11 of bearing his soul, of, of crying, but not just, not just crying, weeping, wailing, lamenting, grieving, and with a level of fury, with a level of, of longing for, for this to not be the case. God, sometimes we, we're a little, we have a tendency maybe to, to shrink up our emotional range, to think somehow there's a, a, a holiness to that or a, a maturity to that. And yet here's Jesus saying, flourishing are the mourners. We will be comforted. God, would you help us to, to see you? Would you help us to see the goodness that you created this world with, the design that you had for this world for us? God, would you break our hearts over the condition of our own lives, of our own choices, of the people around us, of the world that we live in? And would you help us to long for that day when it's all made new? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.